Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Hello again, First Gen Nation. So good to be back talking to you. I know we've been kind of on this every other week rotation, but I've got good news for you. Putting a new spin on the podcast, something that will make the adjustment time right now into our new home and getting back to the school year and all the other time demands that go into that make getting a weekly podcast out there more feasible. And I think it will be a good breath of new life into the podcast as we try out some new things and one of those things that we're going to try you're going to hear next week called campfire chronicles first gen hunter campfire chronicles so what is the first gen hunter campfire chronicles series you ask well on this episode this is like a more standard episode for the podcast that you've grown accustomed to listening to something where we bring in this super high powered guest to come in and basically just be a subject matter expert and we pick their brain for you know sometimes up to two hours long and uh that i think has given this show just an incredible amount of value however i will say this After listening to it myself for this long, sometimes I think that it makes the podcast maybe feel a little too rigid to always have like just so much direct, you know, schools and session (laughs) type of feel to it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of branch out a little bit, bring on a bunch of familiar voices that you've heard in previous episodes, guys that are a lot of fun to talk to, bring them back on the show for uh, our first gen hunter campfire chronicles series where it's like we're all sitting around the campfire hunting camp picking on each other telling funny stories updating people on what's going on bringing maybe may, you know maybe a uh, subject matter expert to give us like a little 10 15 minute talk on one specific topic but other than that it's a lot of shooting from the hip laughs and you know just that good hey we want you to be a part of our hunting camp type of feel to it so we hope that you will be looking forward to that coming out next week and then every other week we'll go back to this format uh, that we're doing in this episode where we bring in a great interview and uh, really just grow in our knowledge and hopefully knowledge applied leads to our skill in hunting and so uh, that's kind of the plan going forward and as i just said a second school in session school is back in session uh you've probably noticed that the last time you walked into walmart you saw the back to school sale stuff you know, i always get like this little this little uh i don't know it's kind of a mixed emotion like i'm always excited at the beginning of a new school year because there's you know all this new energy and um Uh, plus you know you got to get back to school in order to get the hunting season so there's that excitement too and uh you know getting to hang out with all the students again and and uh 
you know, teach them about the subject matters that I love. And so I love that part of it, but there's also, I got to admit, that little bit of sadness that, you know, being able to spend all day every day with my family and uh, get to other projects that I don't normally get to work on and get to that. But uh, all that to say, I'm loving the new job. It's a great place to be. And uh, it just feels good to be back talking about science, even talking about hunting. I'll probably have something to, that I can share on that at some point. Um, but it is, it is good to be back in session. So, um, you know, as I've kind of talked about with, uh, how, how, uh, <laughs> hectic things have been around here lately. Um, I thought you might get a good laugh out of this story. So, uh, my parents, my sister and her kids, they all came out to the farmstead here where we live now this past weekend to help out. Uh, my dad has just been a drywalling warrior getting all the holes patched from the electrician's work and um, uh, my sister was a huge help in removing some old wallpaper and getting a uh, one of our <laughs> uh, like sitting rooms kind of like a, a small living room that we have reorganized and usable now which is just awesome i've been longing to sit on a couch or in a recliner and I can now do that thanks to my sister so shout out to her but um anyways while they're over there they just get here they're like moving boxes and I'm over here trying to frame up the new shower and everything so I'm out in the wood shop cutting boards and everything it was like super dark out there and so um I like come back into the house to grab some light bulbs to because i thought the all these lights were burned out turned out i just needed to find the correct light switch yeah anyways i thought i needed some new light bulbs so i come inside to grab a couple of light bulbs and suddenly my wife and i we were like talking for a second and we just we we, we both smelled it it just hit us this instant pungent smell that you just instantly know what it is skunk and my sister had her dog here my parents had their dog here plus you know that we have two dogs and um yeah my my Brittany theo he got sprayed square in the face by a skunk <laughs> so we had all that busyness going on and now my dog's been skunked and uh, uh what do you do so yeah, Theo had to sleep out on the porch for a few nights. We got them all washed up now, but you can still, you know, as you imagine, get a little uh, get a little leftover smell on him from from that experience. But I think he's going to learn his lesson. His eyes were like beet red. He was frothing from the mouth a little bit uh, from the <laughs> overwhelming uh, uh, experience of getting sprayed right in the face by a skunk. But anyways, that's kind of how my life is going right now, but it's a lot of fun. I'm really excited for the new opportunity and I'm super excited for hunting season right around the corner. Doves open up here in less than two weeks. I was just talking about that with one of my uh, new coworkers today and I'm excited to uh, get out and get the old decoys out and hopefully, uh, bag a few, uh, winged jalapeno poppers. Those things are so delicious and man, are they fun to hunt? So I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. And I hope you're getting everything else ready to go as we head into the season. And in this particular episode here, this is a special one for me. Mr. Dan Johnson is a guy that I've 
been following basically ever since I started hunting. And uh, I've really enjoyed following his content. There's, uh, I've just always felt that he's uh, done a nice job representing my home state here, Iowa, and uh, you know, uh, being a, a good ambassador for uh, the the quality of of uh, sportsmen and women that we have here in in our great state. And so this was a real special one for me to do. And it's on a topic that I think is super relevant right now in the hunting industry because we hear it all the time. Run and gun deer hunting strategy. What all does that mean? Well, Dan is going to fill us in on what exactly run and gun hunting is. And he's going to give us a very high level yet understandable and attainable guide to how to be an effective run and gun whitetail deer hunter you're not going to want to miss any minute of this show in fact there's going to be points where you're going to want to go back and rewind and rehear what dan had to say because like many of the other episodes we've had in the past this is one that as a first gen hunter can set you years yes years ahead in your progression as a deer hunter it can make your hunting life way more enjoyable this very season if you put some of these things into practice so i think you're going to appreciate yet another high level interview here on the first gen hunter podcast episode 65 a run and gun interview with mr dan johnson One time I was chilling on a bench outside of a lecture hall while I was in college. And, uh, you know, it was that kind of awkward time in between classes where you're wanting to be there on time, probably because you've been late the last five times. But uh, I had some extra time while I was waiting around. And all of a sudden, a class had kind of an early release. And when all the students came pouring out of the door to this classroom, I noticed that they were all like at the point of crying because they were laughing so hard. And so, of course, then, you know, you go from your uh, zombie college mode of just going to the next place for the next thing to being highly interested in this situation. And so through some expert level eavesdropping, I found out that there was this incredible prank that had just taken place. What had happened was some a student had organized a game of buzzword bingo based on the super predictable phrases that their prof would say all the time. And so, uh, of course, the prof had no idea this was going on. He was kind of the subject of the prank, I guess. But uh, all the students knew. There was a kind of a a pregame briefing, I guess you could say, pre-class briefing that took place. And everyone understood what was going on except for the one tardy student. So the cards were handed out, the bingo chips were handed out, and uh, this professor was going through their normal lecture, saying all the key phrases, and suddenly the tardy student jolts out of her chair and screams bingo in front of the whole class mid-lecture, and uh, (laughs) the professor had no idea what was going on. He was like uh, utterly shocked. She was utterly embarrassed. 
and the rest of the class was utterly amused. So what is this what is this uh, story about buzzword bingo have to do with anything? Well, our topic today is kind of a new buzzword, newer, I should say, not really new anymore, but it's been around for a few years now, and that is run and gun hunting. And being a first-gen hunter podcast, I imagine that just like the first time I heard it, You've probably heard that term a few times and thought, okay, I think I know what this means, but what exactly does it mean? And so I thought it'd be a great topic to hit because it's a it's a uh, really effective way to kill deer and not just deer, but mature deer. And so I thought it would be only appropriate to bring on the first guy that I ever heard talk about running gun hunting, and that is the one and only Dan Johnson from Sportsman's <laughs> Nation and the Nine Finger Chronicle podcast. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show to educate us tonight. Absolutely, man. I, I really appreciate you thinking of me and asking me to hop on. And typically when someone says the one and only, that kind of makes the expectations a little, a little bit higher than they ought to be. Because, <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I'm nobody special like I was either on the front page of the newspaper saying, Oh, you know, Dan Johnson had 10 tackles in the, the week, uh, Friday's football <laughs> game or Dan Johnson got busted for alcohol and now he's in trouble. So, <laughs> so I was hey, either on the front or the back page. Hey, you know, I often think, cause, cause I'm a teacher, you know, you start to like piece together, like how personalities, you know, personalities shape out, shake out into how we, conduct society now you know each person's personality kind of matches their role but i often think when when i come across a person like that who can be can be both like what you're saying they're outstanding in one moment and then a total uh, how how would you say it like uh loser, wh- Just wh- say loser. <laughs> <laughs> i think those were the people that were the survivors they were not the person who died of diarrhea on the oregon trail they were the one that pulled through <laughs> and made it made it somewhere so right you know what it's not it's not always bad to be be the wild card and uh i gotta say you know i even though you and i have i think we've done a few podcasts in the past for iowa sportsman but uh, we haven't met officially from listening to you on various shows through the years. You know, I feel like I've gotten at least somewhat of an idea of, of, you know, your personality type and, uh, you're, you're definitely a wild card and it's a lot of fun to hear what you have to say and a lot of fun to talk to you. So there's, there's nothing wrong with that at all, man. I'm going to take that as a compliment. Um, cause my grandma, when she called me a wild card, it meant something a little bit different. And, uh, <laughs> But she's gone now, so I think we're good. I'm, I'm, I will accept your version of wild card. <laughs> all right, sounds good. Yeah, I mean it. I mean it in all in all respect. You know, every, everyone's <laughs> got to have the wild card friend, man. That's they're the people that that keep the world interesting. So, I think that's awesome. You know, b- before we get too far into this, and you know, we'll definitely give you a chance to promote uh, your show and and uh, you know more than just your show, your network now. Uh, that you've uh, built through the years, but um, Nine Finger Chronicles, can you kind of tell people how that came to be? (laughs) Uh, I got my finger cut off uh, (laughs) in in 2000, in 2005, right? So fast forward like uh, nine years and I, uh, you know, 
my buddy Mark Kenyon, he asked me to be the co-host on the Wired to Hunt podcast. And I said, yeah. And uh, so that was my introduction into podcasting. And somewhere around that time, I started a blog where I was writing about the outdoors and I was writing um, some for uh, some outdoor some other outdoor magazines sure. and uh, so on a, you know, on a big scale and also on a little scale, did some blogging for some other companies as well. And then I said to myself, well, hey, man, I, I, I need to start something and I need to make it unique so that people, you know, like you got to have a unique name. And it just I was watching, I don't know, like with one of my kids or something like that, like the Chronicles of Narnia or okay, something like yeah. that. And it yep. just kind of. I don't know if it was that specifically, but I just remember it's like nine finger chronicles. It just popped into my head and I'm just like done. Like I didn't even have to think about it anymore. And that was the name that uh, I went with and that's what, what I stuck with. And that's what it is today. I love it, man. That's, that's awesome. And you did allude there to a little bit about your, uh, your background in the outdoor industry and uh you know this being first gen hunter podcast i did not hunt until about seven years ago and so i'm you know i'm late to the game on pretty much everything hunting that including who's who in the industry and yeah. um uh, i found out years later after tuning into uh the wired hunt podcast actually the first ever podcast episode of any podcast i believe that i ever listened to was the interview that uh you and mark did with um joe shed on shed hunting and, okay and uh you know I, I it's like man these things have been around for how long and i've been you know struggling to listen to am radio to keep me awake while i'm <laughs> driving late at night and stuff and so uh, uh that was that was the first time i started listening but then years after that i found out that you had uh done some stuff with uh the guys from uh wicked tree gear um yeah uh, uh todd of course the, the late todd pregnants and uh yep um the, I was just like productions and yeah. Yep. White knuckle productions. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. And, and if I remember correctly from what I saw there, that was kind of your nickname, right? Dan nine fingers, Johnson. Wasn't that? Well, that was one of them. Uh, (laughs) I tell, (laughs) careful. This is a clean rated podcast. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, you might have some editing ahead of you. No, (laughs) they, uh, uh, the first time I ever met, uh, Todd, Todd, uh, pregnance. Um, I, I just moved back from Alabama. I had my finger had already been cut off by then. It was like 2006 or something. My buddy's like, Hey, uh, I, when I was working down there in Alabama, I, I didn't get the opportunity to hunt like I wanted to, cause I was working so much. And I, mm. I kind of went through this, this, uh, pretty depressing time in my life where it was just like work, 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 no fishing, no outdoor type stuff. Mm. And I moved back to Iowa and kind of cannonballed into it. My buddy's like, Hey, I got this guy. He's going to start a hunting DVD. uh, And I think you should meet him. And I'm like, uh, all right, I'll, I'll meet him. So we met at this bar and at that time, Todd had already had a couple drinks in his system and the music was playing kind of loud. And I went over to introduce myself and I said, Hey man, my name's Dan Johnson. And he goes, Dallas? And I go, <laughs> no, Dan Johnson. And he goes, Dallas, Fort Worth. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. That's my name. <laughs> like I didn't want to have to explain to this guy yeah, because uh, it wasn't going to happen. 
So right. he gave he kind of just gave me the the nickname Dallas Fort Worth, and it <laughs> stuck for how I mean. There's still people that call me that, and that was back in 2006. So that's awesome, man, to have that have the backstory like that, and yeah. and of course such a great guy uh, that that Todd was, and you know really what as I'm learning now you know, retro in retrospect, I guess you would say, uh, as I look back from this almost as a historical side of the industry, that was really at a time of transition, it seems in the outdoor industry coming away from the Saturday morning, turn on the, uh, outdoor channel to more of a, Hey, you can uh, buy these DVDs that you may or may not see on TV. You can go to shows to, to, you know, meet these people, find out who they are. And then of course the advent of YouTube just, uh, totally, uh, kind of exploded everything. And and of course podcasts as well. So yeah, it's really cool to, to see the, see the whole story of that. And I got one more question and you can either answer this truthfully or, uh, or, uh, you're like wild story that you, you, uh, give people, but I really want to know the true one. So I may ask you again after, uh, cause I've wondered it for all these years. Yeah. What happened to the finger, man? How did you lose the finger? So I'll give you the abbreviated version uh, of the of how it actually happened, and then I'll tell you the story that blows people away when I tell when I just lie to their face. (laughs) And (laughs) so uh, I was working in a factory down in College Park, Georgia. Okay. And I was working on this uh, on this condensation plate in a so uh, this factory was like fried chicken. Right. It it fried chicken and other meats and it made soups and things like that. Sure. And all this condensation would be in the air from the frying of the foods and breading and whatnot. So there's these giant fans that would suck the the condensation out of the building. Okay. Well, some of the breading over time blocked this little drain tube and the water was sitting in there and the safety gate got kind of rusted on the bottom. And I went up uh, and it, the the breading was blocking the drainage of this uh, this water. So my boss goes, hey, you need to get up there and go unclog that tube. So anyway, we can, you know, and while you're up there, clean it, whatever. I'm like, all right. So the fan is probably three foot in diameter, maybe okay. a little bigger. Sure. And it's spinning so fast you can see through it. I mean, it's just. Oh, no. It's just. Yeah, it's crazy. So. I get up there, I start working on it. I'm on a ladder and I can't really get my positioning right. So I straddle the ladder. But when, so when I did that, the, you know, you put your hand on the the end of a vacuum and it just kind of goes, sucks it down real, yeah. you know, sucks your hand out. That's kind of what my body did to that opening. And so I, had, I put my one, one arm up and my other hand slid down into that, uh, that condensation tray or that, that drainage tray, but that water had been sitting there for so long that it had kind of rusted through the mm-hmm. that safety gate yep. and it peeled, it peeled all of the, uh, the safety gate back and my hand got sucked into that fan and just kind of popped my finger off. So, oh man. Yeah. I instantly went into shock and then, uh, they got, you know, long story short, got to the hospital. They said, Hey, it's going to take, uh, it's going to take one year of isolation where you can't use your hand. Basically, you just have to hold it, like hold it still. And then there's going to be, if we try to reattach it, and then there's going to be a another six months to a year of therapy. And there's still a 50% chance that it will fall off and it won't take. So I said, just leave it off. And oh, man. Here we are, here we are today. 
That's hardcore, man. I my hats off to you for just just being able to call it. You know, no, no one to hold them, no one to fold them, right? And that right. was, and and I'm gonna guess that uh, you went bow hunting as soon as you could after that, right? I got my finger cut off. I think it was like on a well, I want to say like a Monday night. I think it was. I was in a tree stand by that weekend. <laughs> That is awesome, man. Because it was in October, and I so my company sent me home for like two weeks of R and R or whatever. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, sent, they sent me back to Iowa, and what did I do? I just popped in a tree stand and went hunting. So, man, that's making that's making lemonade out of lemons right there. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's awesome. So, what's the what's the uh, the wild story now? That, yeah. The, you know, the, you know, if I know I'm not going to see this person ever again, uh, I'll probably, I tell the, uh, I tell that story and that is, and that is, uh, so you know how popular noodling is or, oh, yeah. was yep. or whatever. So I'm like, yeah, I was out noodling in the, you know, <laughs> my local river and I put my hand in this rock to chase a catfish and sure enough, a snapping turtle got a hold of it. <laughs> And I had to pull it out, pull this pocket knife out, and I had to cut the <laughs> turtle's head off. And by that time, it was too late. And like these, like people who don't know anything about the outdoors, they listen to a story like that, and you can see the fear in their face. And they're like, "That happens." And I'm like, "Yeah, that happens more than you think." You know, like. <laughs> oh man! So, so did you uh, break the ice with your in-laws with that <laughs> with that story? Uh, I think by then, uh, I, I told my mother-in-law, uh, that story before, you know, like one of the first times I met her and she was like, are you serious? She's pretty gullible. So she believed me, but then I had to, you know, obviously I'm going to see her again and, right. and through, she, she'll find out that it wasn't the true story, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, not having a, not having a finger, you can do some pretty cool party tricks and I've take, I've, I've taken advantage of every single, you know, comedic action that a guy could do for missing a finger. You know, I'm that, I'm that uncle now, right? I'm <laughs> that right, guy right. who, who's, you know, got some kind of machinery, uh, damage to his hands. And I fit in with my family now because my grandpa had part of his finger, uh, chopped off. My uncle had part of his finger chopped off. And, uh, so I, I fit right in now. Yep. That's for sure. And you're, you're in the, the land of farming. And, you know, I think if you probably like, did some kind of statistic on the highest number of people with an uneven number of digits, Iowa would probably uh, rank near the top because of all the, almost every farmer I know has either almost lost a oh, finger yeah. or has lost at least part of a finger to yep. some kind of machinery accident. So yeah, you definitely, yep, you definitely fit in well here in, in Iowa, but Thanks for sharing the story. You you answered a question that I've had ever since I uh, learned uh, of the fact that you were missing a finger. So, and no one ever, no one really ever asked you that I came across. So it was, it was, uh, it was good to to have that itch scratched. But yeah, I'm glad you've been able though to overcome that, and uh, you know, still shooting slobs seems like every yeah. year now. That's that's pretty cool. I man. like I like how you say overcome. Like I lost a leg or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> Like, right. I, uh, I, I was looking into, I was talking to this one guy, um, or I was watching this documentary on, uh, the, uh, the amputee Olympics and this guy, he runs like 
a hundred miles and he's got no legs. Right. And yeah. I look at my wife and I go, I know how he feels just as a joke. Right. And, and, and she's oh, no. like, what are you talking about? The only thing that you ever had to like overcome was how to reuse chopsticks. <laughs> oh man, that is, that is good. That's a That's a good, that's a good comeback. That's the kind of comeback I'd get from my wife too. It's good to, it's good to have uh, some attitude from your spouse that keeps us in check. Right. <laughs> Right. But, well, man, let's, let's start talking some hunting here. Um, so, yeah. so we kind of know your background a little bit about how you've uh, been in the industry now for a while doing different things. And, and, you know, another thing I do want to compliment you on with that, that I've noticed ever since I started following along is you're, you're an incredibly hard worker when it comes to, uh, making stuff, you know, turn out. And, uh, I think that, that, that scene in how you balance, uh, you know, the crazy side of, of kid life. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, uh, I know you, uh, had to work an, another job at the same time, uh, while you were recording podcasts and building what eventually became sportsman's nation network. And, uh, you know, all of that juggling, all that, that I know from, from experience trying to do the same thing right now, it's, it is a lot of hours that, most people have no idea about so you know give yourself a yeah give yourself a uh pat on the back with that so but uh appreciate how did you, yeah for sure man for sure really appreciate and, and again i really appreciate you giving me the time for this interview but how did you uh first get into hunting i mean would you describe yourself as a first generation hunter like i do or were you uh in in a more of a did you grow up in a family that hunted uh, that kind of thing how, how did you really get get your feet wet in hunting yeah so i'm definitely a first generation um a first generation bow hunter for deer i'll say that sure right but i come from a long line of uh, outdoors men i guess you could say my uncles um not so much my mom my dad my my dad liked to fish a little bit but he he wasn't like what i would define as an outdoorsman like he loves he loves to camp Right. And he had me and my brother outside all the time camping and and going to state parks and and doing outdoor adventure type stuff. But when it comes to like the outdoor, like the the hunting, the fishing, that kind of side of things, um, very minimal into the fishing. Uh, We did we did go fishing a lot. uh, But my uncles, they were trappers. uh, They turkey hunted. They um, they definitely they definitely fished as well. They, they did a lot of pheasant hunting. Um, the first animal I ever killed was a, a pheasant with my uncle and, uh, he took me out. Oh, I don't even know how old I was. I was young, like barely old enough to, to hold up a, a 12 gauge. And we went out and I shot a, I shot a pheasant. I was probably 12 oh, or man, 13 that's cool. or something. That's cool. Yeah. And so other than that, I mean, if you want to say what I do now, definitely first generation, uh, bow hunter, whitetail hunter. Uh, but when it comes to outdoors, like the rest of the outdoors, there was some, there was some, uh, additional help out there and interest from other family members. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool though, that you were able to, uh, you know, get that experience from those other people that had an important role in your life. So you got a little taste of that. I don't know if I've heard somebody criticize this term and I think that, that there's, uh, 
there's a good reason behind why he does, but kind of that heritage side of hunting that we hear talked about all the time. But yeah, the fact that you ran with it from there and, and took it elsewhere, you know, one, one thing that I think I just assumed when I was getting into hunting, maybe it's because I'm such a hunting generalist myself where, you know, I like a little bit of everything deer, deer hunting is definitely my favorite, but you know, I, I can't wait for September. What is it? September 4th to roll around and dove seasons open. You know, I, I love doing all that stuff. And, and I just assumed that, that all hunters were that way. But then I remember last year, even, you know, I, I came across a guy. I started talking about deer hunting with him. All he cared about were pheasants, <laughs> you know? So right. there's, there's, there's some guys that, that, you know, they're just dialed in on one thing and, and, and one thing only and, and nothing wrong with that. They become an expert in their area. Uh, but it's also cool to see people uh, kind of mosh, you know, several different types of hunting or, or even fishing too, you know, getting that full picture of the outdoors in their, their bag of experiences, I think is, is, uh, it's a good thing. It only helps. So yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you this, man. Um, they set the foundation as far as the interest level was concerned. My uncles kind of did fishing. We always kind of did, but it wasn't like a major thing, you know, worms and bobbers basically. Yeah, yep. And then, then we moved away and we did, we still did some fishing, but there was nothing it, there was no there was no um watching hardcore tactics there was no watching tactics or or anything like that so sure everything i didn't i when it comes to bow hunting and whitetails which i would say is my forte that was all learned the hard way and hmm. no mentors right it was yeah. no mentors no it was me on my own and uh, back then i I, I got all my information from like outdoor life yeah. or North American whitetail or yeah, things like that. Right. Yeah. And if you look back in the mid nineties on whitetail strategy compared to what it is now, it's just like, <laughs> Holy cow, yeah. you were wrong. Like, uh, like a lot of, a lot of false information being spread through what people assumed or what product they were trying to sell. Right. And all that yep. stuff. So, um, and then it was just, Hey, here's a, here's a bow. Here's a handful of arrows that don't match. Here's a bucket. <laughs> Go see what you can do. Yep. Now there's, I, I resonate with so much of what you said, but I, I, I have to admit that I've had that advantage, you know, uh, honestly, you know, I, and you know, I keep referencing back to this, but through listening to, to podcasts like, like your show and, and of course wired to hunt and, and several others, that's kind of how I learned to hunt, but that was, you know, that was years into that side of, I guess you could say hunting education, maybe we could call our hunting resources. And there was yeah. so much good information that had I not had that, I don't know if I'd have a deer on the ground by now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just uh, yeah. when you're learning, when you're learning so much on your own, it, it you're exactly right. I mean, just even acquiring the gear alone, you know, that's, and back yeah. then, back then too, for you, you know, you're talking mid nineties, what gear was capable of your average used bow or your average entry level bow, what it was capable of compared to now is just, yeah. you know, night and day. So, oh man, that's, 
that's a that's a good thing to bring up and a good you know we probably sound like a couple of old men here <laughs> talking about the old <laughs> days but but it's it, i think it's important to acknowledge those things of the past and uh you know that that transitions well now into what we're having this conversation about because as i said at the beginning of this show i feel like running gun tree stand hunting style is kind of this new part of an evolving hunting approach. And uh, I mentioned also that I'm, I'm a teacher and, and I've been a biology teacher for most of my career. And so you talk about how animals adapt, you know, um, you hear all the anecdotal evidence, usually from a guy in Wisconsin, right. Who will say, man, around here, the deer, they're just always looking up in the trees when they're, when they're walking by, they, they pin out the, and, and there's truth to that. You know, the animals adapt to our approaches and our technology as well. You know, how many times do you get a trail camera picture and the buck is staring right at, and you're even using like an infrared flash, you know, they just, they, they, they start to learn. And so I think this running gun strategy is kind of this, this uh, new frontier of, of hunting and guys like you have been doing it for a long time, you know? So with that being said, how, what is the Dan Johnson like down and dirty definition of run and gun hunting. Yeah, it, you can read an article, you can listen to podcasts, and and I think a, I think people try to make it out to be a lot more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, it's it's simple. It's very simple. Go to where the deer are at. Hmm. It that's it. I mean, then you can start breaking it all down, right? Then you can start breaking down wind direction and access routes and, um, and thermals and, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, how deer use terrain and how they use edge and vegetation and food sources. And like, you can get, it can get very complicated, but from a, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to talk to a, a guy who is typically sitting in a ladder stand on, on a field edge and he wants to know how to uh, approach this run and gun style of hunting. It's very simple. You have to move to where the deer are at and continuously move to put yourself in the best possible position to get a shot at whatever your target or your goal is. Very simple. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, that is, that is a simple definition. And that's kind of how I've always pictured it in my head but then i think the next natural question for you then is is how often should somebody move are you talking like you know let's say it's you know well i'll I'll ask you this what time if you can have your way and uh you know let's say you've taken a midday break you know or maybe a late morning till you know, early afternoon break, what time are you hoping to be in a tree in? let's say on a, uh, we'll, we'll go, we'll go pre right here, but we'll say like late October. What time are you, yeah. uh, trying to, are hoping to be in the tree by for an evening sit? Okay. So as far as time is concerned, I mean, I try to get in, like I try to get into the tree stand in the mornings an hour before the sun comes up. Uh, an hour before shooting light, roughly. Sure. Depe- depending on, you know, there's a whole bunch of different things that would would uh, that that would make me come to that conclusion, right? Uh, if there's trail camera data that says, hey, deer are moving it through that area before that, or there's 
two groups of deer, maybe one comes through two hours before, and then another one comes through uh, an out an hour after that. I might try to squeeze in there or get get in way early or, or maybe wait for those nocturnal move that nocturnal movement to come through and then hop in a stand. And then as far as afternoon is concerned, um, it, it just depends on what historical information. It depends on what time of year it is. It sure. depends on uh, wind direction. It depends on, am I hunting a staging area? Am I hunting a food source? Am I hunting a bedding area? Am I hunting a, a pinch point or a funnel or something like that? Right. So if we're talking late October before the full rut is coming in, you know, I like to be in, I like to be in the tree early so that any type of ground scent that I may have left mm. behind, it just is kind of gone yeah. by then if the deer movement comes in. So I like to get out there somewhere between two and three. Let's just say that, uh, you know, end of shooting light is after six o'clock or something like that, or, or between five thirty and six. Um, and then, you know, obviously when there's the time change, then we go a, yeah. an hour earlier than that. And then there's some times where I'll get out of a morning set, go back to my truck, grab some water, grab a, a bite to eat and head right back out to the timber. So, um, I think when it comes to this, this style of running gun, uh, another part of the definition is to to be able to be fluid and flexible with the conditions and the information that you have to that and use that those conditions and use that information to help you make the best decision in when and how to approach a certain set. Hmm, I like that, man. I got I got way more than I'd hoped for there on that, on that <laughs> answer. That's that's there's yeah. some excellent high like really high level tips there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and pull pull them out just real quickly here because uh, I know I know you got other things going, but if you're listening in, you're you're brand new to hunting. Basically, w- what Dan's saying there is you make that decision based on all of the factors that go into where you're wanting to hunt. Of course, the time of year that you're hunting them and the the current conditions along with if you've been able to do the homework, compiled historical data. And that's where, you know, having a hunting mentor could really pay off because if you're brand new, you're not going to have any of that historical data on your own. You're going to need yeah. to you're going to need to ask somebody else. But but that's good because I think a lot of people just and honestly, myself included, because I'm still new enough. We kind of just go by a general, well, you're supposed to be in your tree stand by, you know, four o'clock or something like that, you know, and, but you're you're right. It's, it's a lot more, there's a lot more to it and it takes away a lot of that guessing, especially I I like how you use the trail cam example for getting in the morning when you're, you're, (laughs) you shut the truck, the truck door and you start walking. You're like, man, I really hope there's not some tardy dough hanging out in the field here that's going to spot me and then just ruin the rest of the morning you know that takes that takes a lot of that guess i mean that could still happen of course but but takes takes some of that unknown out of it so i like that okay so so now that you're you're in the tree we've made this fluid decision based on all the factors you mentioned if you sense that like let's say you get up i mean you've gone through the hassle of getting your, and I definitely want to pick your brain on how to de-hassle hang, hanging hunts. But uh, let's say you've gone through the hassle, getting your stand, all your sticks set up, your stands up, you even got your harness on 
and all of a sudden you just like maybe the wind shifts or you're start maybe you 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 actually spot a deer like a couple hundred yards away are you are you going to then consider dropping it and and moving or are you going to wait till tomorrow to make that move Okay, all you fellow first-gen hunters, veteran hunters, and anyone else with a great big fat hunting dream that you have not yet tapped into, I'm talking directly to you right now. And this is a personal testimony. Yep, you're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth. And that is because I am a customer of good old Alex Gruen over at East to West Hunts. And I'm going to tell you right now, there is not a better hunt planning service in the business here is how thorough alex is i'm just going to give you that that first person testimonial that hopefully will help seal the deal for you after i get done recording this ad i'm going to use a promo code that alex sent to me via text message to save me big bucks on a really nice hunting pack that i've had my eye on for months now and uh, he just kind of came up with this promo code just yesterday, got it in the mail or something. He said, you know what? I'm going to save this for you. I know you got your eye on this pack. He sent it to me. Alex has sent me workout tips. Alex has been there around the clock from all my inquiries on different pieces of gear, from sleeping bags to tents to rifle scopes. And he's got connections all over the place. So he... He knows where to send you to get you the right stuff to not only make it so that you can get out on the hunt, but you can be comfortable, get a good night's sleep, and hunt effectively each and every day of your trip, truly maximizing the dollars spent to get there. And I think that's probably the biggest value in all of this. Alex has so much experience hunting all over North America that when he sends you somewhere, you're not going there blind. No, he's going to send you to specific places within these units that he, either through his vast network with guides and outfitters or from his own personal experience, his own waypoints that he's saved on his hunting maps that he'll share with you so that you have the best chance at being successful. So head over to www.alexgruen.com and do your hunt planning with Alex through East to West Hunts. Be sure though, when you go through and you start checking out all the options, I should say he's got multiple options there, depending on what your the right price point is for you. Be sure you enter the First Gen Hunter podcast listener code, First Gen 10 at checkout. When you enter that in, you'll get 10% off of any service you purchase through Alex. Again, that's www alexgruen.com use the promo code first gen the number 10 at checkout save yourself 10 percent and get going on that hunt that you've been putting on the back burner for all these years yeah i am uh 100 considering it like i always consider things I, I always have a uh a running i don't know like a computer right yep you think about a computer and how a computer makes decisions but I think like that when it comes to, you know, okay, if I sit here, is it going to help or hurt me? Right. If it's going to hurt me, I should leave. 
right? It's, it's almost binary, the thought process, right? It's like on and off, right? If I sit here, will it hurt? Okay, yes, it's going to hurt. I move. Will it help me? Okay, I'm going to stick around. I'm going to see what's up. But if it's daylight and there's deer already moving through, you're just going to hurt yourself mm. if you try to get out of the stand yeah. and try to creep in on something that is going to see you. Yep. It's going to, it's going to hear you, um, depending on the, the vegetation and the terrain that you have to, to access, but there's nothing saying that I can't let that, that movement go through, tear down, set up midday, leave the area and come back to try to catch that, that the next morning or potentially catch them using that same trail to come out. Yeah. But it's, it's really hard to talk about things like this when every single scenario is different, yeah. right? Yep. So I, you could tell me, Hey Dan, I got this place where, you know, on a Northwest wind, the, the wind does this, the thermals does this, the train terrain is like that. And I can say, oh, I got a place similar to that. The wind does this, the thermals do this, the terrain does this, but this happens or yeah. this happens or this happens. So it's hard to make like these, I don't know what the word I'm, I'm looking for a generality is. or something like that. Yeah, it's like solid facts. There's no solid facts when it comes to hunting strategy because every setup for everybody who's going to listen to this is different. Hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a really good point. And, like uh, principles, right? Like principles. That's yeah. what I go by. It's like, okay, do deer love, like do cruising bucks in the rut love to be downwind of bedding areas? Yes, they do. Hmm. So I'm going to go look for that. I'm not going to look on the point of a ridge or, or on a staging area or, or like all these things. I have to be able to observe and think and make decisions based off of the hand that I'm dealt and take into consideration what all, like, again, all the information, all the data that I have to make the best decision based off of that. And I can apply those principles to it, but I'm not going to uh, apply, uh, what somebody else says or what I read in a, an article or listen to on a podcast blindly to that when that person has never set foot on the properties that I hunt. Yeah. I like that. Yep. That's, and it's important to keep that in focus because again, coming from a first gen hunter perspective, you feel like you're doing everything that's mentioned in the podcast or the outdoor life article or whatever, and then it's not working. And it could simply be just based on what Dan said. Yeah, because your situation is different and the deer are wild animals with free <laughs> thought and plenty of instinct to keep them alive. And so they might just be, be behaving a little bit different or there could just be another variable that exists that uh, you don't know about. Um, you know, a, an interview I remember that you did for the Iowa Sports Magazine, I think it was with uh, uh, Todd uh, Tom Peplinski and he talked about um, yep. how he had that balloon, <laughs> that balloon yep. that like got snagged on a tree and he's, he, he had had, no clue. you're right. He had yep. no clue. He's like, and he had, he'd patterned the deer all, you know, early season with camera and he was just ready to clean up during uh like, and it was late pre-rut or late muzzle loader or something like that when they're a little bit more predictable. And, and uh, he uh, just couldn't figure out why they weren't using that trail. Well, it's because this balloon was flapping around like crazy, right. ca creating all sorts of noise, spooking deer. And yeah, there could be something like that so yeah i like that that's good. that's that's a really good point okay so uh, you know now now that you've really defined this well you've you've defined how you make your decisions 
Um, would you agree with this, this thought? If you're going to use run and gun effectively, you need to know your hunting property kind of like the back of your hand. I mean, from like shed hunting, from, you know, you know, just spending time out on the land, aerial scouting, of course, or I shouldn't say, necessarily say aerial. I guess you could consider it that, but but like e-scouting on Google Earth and, and mapping apps and things like that. Do you think that's important or do you think run and gun can be really effective? Like if all of a sudden, you know, you got almost like a video game, you got picked up, dropped off on some random map and said, all right, Dan, you got, you know, a week to go kill a buck. Do you think that a run and gun would be just as effective there with not knowing the landscape at all? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. If you're gonna lay, if you're gonna put things in level or order, let's just say a guy gets dropped off on a piece of property he's never scouted before, mm-hmm. and he says to him, so, uh, and there's there's guy A, B, and C. The guy A, he's gonna sit on a field edge and he's gonna wait for deer to come out, mm-hmm. or he's gonna sit on a field edge in the mornings and wait for them to come back in or or whatever. Right. Okay. Then that guy is gonna finish last every time, mm. uh, unless he gets lucky. Okay. Then we have guy number, uh, uh, guy B and guy B or two or however, however we're doing this, he is mobile and all he's going on is experience. He's going off of applying principles that he's learned in other properties of the best possible place to set up, whether that's, uh, a, a, a staging area, a pinch point downwind of bedding, whatever he's using the knowledge that he has. He's going to finish second. The guy who's going to finish first is the guy who spends the most time on the property, scouting, learning terrain, um, looking at how wind moves through that uh, that property, um, educating himself on how deer use the ter- uh, terrain, not only when there is vegetation on the ground in the early season, but also after all the trees are, you know have dropped their leaves, vegetation is gone, mm. and it's just a barren right? Mm -hmm. It's just the sticks that are are basically there. So you're not just learning a property one time and applying rules to it. You have to apply, you have to change those rules based off of how, what time of year it is. Is it breeding? Is it early season? Are are there acorns that have dropped? Is the, is there, uh, what kind of crop rotation is it? Is it uh, vegetation on? Is it vegetation off? Is there snow on the ground? Is it drought? Is it water? You know, do we have a, 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 a crick running through it? Like all these things matter. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to decipher this code to where and how these deer move. And the more time you spend digitally scouting, the more time you spend on the property, boots on the ground scouting, which is by far the best. Yeah. Um, knowing, knowing where bedding areas are, knowing where sign shows up, knowing food sources, you know, somewhere in that, that bed to feed pattern that everybody talks about. Yep. That guy's going to, that guy is going to, um, when he, when he knows those things and applies the same principles that the guy is finishing second, he's going to finish first, mm. off, like just by the amount of data that he has on the property. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really important thing for for new hunters to consider because I think we can compartmentalize 
our hunting season so much, especially with whitetails, because they are such a, a challenging, they're, they're a worthy game to pursue, right? They're, they're, they have right. every tool in, in their advantage to survive other than they don't have a bow and they don't, or they don't have a gun. Right. And, and uh, I think we can just compartmentalize deer season so much to saying, Oh, right now it's, it's uh april that's a you know i'm not even thinking about deer hunting right now i need to be thinking about fishing or turkeys or you know and then it comes around okay you know it's it's two weeks into september i guess i better start thinking about deer season well by then you're kind of going to be stuck like guy a that you mentioned who has to hunt a field edge and hope to get lucky because he's hunting near you know a a, a food source or something and it, it, it just, it's just a guessing game at that point your best your best hypothesis is going to yeah. to uh, be your only tool but the guy who took the time right. to to be out there and and honestly it's it's so enjoyable to be on a property during those those changing of seasons and and actually learning something like that there, there's a ton of value to that and it just makes you a better a better uh you know woodsman i guess you would say but but uh yep. Absolutely. I like that a lot. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the, the gear side of this, because I think that's a huge part. And first of all, I want to, I want to kind of kick this off with this. I have heard on, on other interviews you've done where the, uh, saddle hunting cult has tried to, uh, convert you. <laughs> 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 and it's always yes, met, have. and it's always met with a hard pass <laughs> and yeah. uh uh why is that why why do you why do you stick with your uh your uh hang on tree stand yeah man it's just something in, you know to each is to each his own when it comes to gear right people should use what they're confident in and uh whether that is a saddle or whether that is a a tree stand I am more confident and comfortable in a tree stand. Hmm. And there's just a couple of scenarios that I, I, I really can't work out in my head when it comes to saddle hunting. Uh, and like I said, I've been using the same exact setup since like 2008, wow. maybe, maybe, maybe even earlier than that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think I, I got, I think I got my first lone wolf, uh, set of sticks and, uh, I bought them from a guy. And oh, that's so, awesome, man. That's yeah. early. That's early days of them, right? Yeah. Pre 2008, man. Yeah. Somewhere around there. And I had, you know, I had, uh, and that just kind of changed it. And since changed the game for me. And since then, uh, it's like in another appendage for me. And mm. it's just, I feel I, I'm not even thinking when I set it up, you know, cause I do it so much and it's just, for me, it's something that I'm confident and comfortable with. And that leads to me just continuing continuously using it and using it right and putting myself in the best position. Yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. And, uh, by the way, I agree with you and it could just be because I'm, I, I feel like I'm over the weight limit for a, uh, to be comfortable in a saddle, <laughs> but, but, I, <laughs> but, uh, you, uh, you, uh, actually won me over on the lone wolf thing a long, a long time ago. And I, I have a friend who, uh, by the way, I'll give you his name when we're done with this, because, uh, I think you'd enjoy interviewing him, but he, uh, he gave me a, uh, lone wolf, uh, last summer. And, uh, Man, that that has changed how I hunt. That that is that is yeah. uh, really got me well on my way to uh, 
being more mobile and and utilizing uh the different factors that you mentioned i'm far from an expert though <laughs> yeah so absolutely I, I uh i i tried uh doing the old uh downwind of a bedding area uh last year during the rut and uh i i ran into a uh 170s class on my way in and i like couldn't even i was i after that i mean i i almost got to full draw on him and after that fell apart so did i and i just kind of <laughs> wandered the woods like a crazy person trying to find a, a tree to put my stand in <laughs> yeah but no it's uh it's it's an important piece of equipment and i like how you mentioned in there you're comfortable i don't think we hunt well when we're not comfortable whether our our feet are totally frozen and uh, we can't feel our toes or uh we're we're too sleepy you know and that can honestly that can that can get dangerous or uh probably speaking of of a safety thing you don't have a harness that that's comfortable you're not going to wear it if uh you got a got a harness that that you're not going to like and uh if you don't have a seat that you can sit on for the hours necessary uh kind of going back to what you talked about earlier you're wanting to get in there plenty early not just because of when you know the coast is clear as far as deer go so you're going to bump anything but also uh trying to let your your scent you know get get out of the picture as well so um i think uh I think that uh, there's there's a, a lot to uh, uh, be put into that consideration. So, being comfortable is yep, is important. So uh, n- now that now that we're talking about that, with with your sticks that you're bringing in, first of all, are you since you're hunting a lot of the same properties time and again, are you setting up you know more permanent sticks on like say five of your favorite trees? Uh, or are you always packing in your your um, portable sticks? Yeah, so here's kind of a weird statistic I, I just uh, happened to think about and collect last season. I think it was – no, the season before that I think it was because I, I kind of got lucky this past season. But the previous season I had one – I think it was like four – four or five pre-hung tree stands in downwind of bedding areas. Um, I had them uh, in major pinch points. I had them in staging areas, like that kind of thing. Sure. And I used them two times throughout the entire, (laughs) throughout the entire season. And And the rest was just running and gunning. And it's not that I didn't, it was just like, all the data and and information that I was gathering were just telling me that the deer were running a different circuit and Mm. it wasn't where I had hung my tree stands. So if I ever get to uh, pre-hung those tree stands, so if I ever get to uh, a situation where I can't find a target buck or I can't get on a deer, I will hop into one of those historically good pre-hung tree sets and start the search from there Mm. because that will lead me to hope, you know, that along with trail camera data should lead me into a, an area where, hey, this deer's making, you know, this deer's doing the same thing two days in a row. Let's see if he does it a third, and then I'll I'll run and gun on that spot. Or, you know, I seen I seen him come up this little spur ridge. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if uh, if I can move in on the spur ridge or or whatever. And and just the it's like a kickoff point, and then you just micromanage those those stand locations until you're until you hopefully connect 
Sure. Yeah, I think that's I think that's an important thing to consider. And I've I've definitely noticed the same thing. You know, you can put all this time into setting something up and and like we've been talking about all along, you just things seemed a lot different in August when you're putting that thing up than they end up being, you know, especially here in our neck of the woods, because when the corn comes down, the landscape is a, it's a blank slate for what the, how the deer are going to use it at that point. Pretty much. I mean, you you can have historical data from, from that on trail cameras and what you've observed and stuff, but, but it's going to change behavior. And, you know, what if, what if your corn is the last to be standing in, in your square mile or what if it's the first to go, you know, that, that changes things. So it's, it's important thing. Okay. So what about, um, you know, let's, let's kind of go back to this, this comfort idea here. Um, one of the things I've noticed, uh, you've used, I think I saw it in a video once you were, you did on Instagram. Um, I noticed that your the, the tie in rope that you have for your harness, it, it was not the standard, you know, uh, football belt <laughs> that comes with your, your tree harness. It looked like it was like a climbing rope or something that you had rigged up with maybe a slip knot or something on it. Do you have any other like modifications that you use to make the, you know, the hang on game a little bit easier? Nope. I don't mod out any. Okay. Well, I take that back. I do one mod to my tree stands okay. and that is to wrap them with hockey tape that's Mm. it and that that just dulls down any clinking just a little bit Uh, there's other people that go you know they they try to make uh four sticks climbing the the height of four sticks by using two sticks and some rope and or tying rope to the tree stands to quiet it down a hundred percent or you know do all these crazy things to it like i said man i've been using some of the 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 stand setups now for like 15 years right and and i'm not uh i i know how to be quiet i just don't understand like to me i don't understand how crazy are you setting up and and not paying attention to where (laughs) you're making so many clinks and clanks and and things like that yeah i guess it just doesn't happen for me there, I understand why they're doing it. They're trying to reduce weight or they're trying to prevent any small little clink and clank on, on their, uh, equipment. And I get it, but I guess I, I, I just don't do it. Sure. Now, now when you say you're putting hockey tape on stuff, is that just on like the, uh, straps for the, the sticks and your stand, it's, or are you, are you putting it kind of on the deck and everything else too? Yeah. So, um, depends on how much I have. I don't wrap all of my stuff in hockey tape, but like all my, my run and gun sets for sure. I'll have hockey tape around the, the, the step and then the vertical section of the, the hang on. And then sometimes okay. um, they're on the, on the uh, st- stands that I use when you, you fold them down, there's a contact point where it's metal on metal. So I'll wrap hockey tape around there as well. And that just prevents that clink, that, that noise uh, again. And, uh, and again, it's just very minimal and it, it just, I don't know, it's easier to grip. Sometimes it's not as cold. It deadens the noise. And then, uh, and I, I just do it on like the front the front part of the stand that metal on metal contact points and that's it. Hmm. Yeah. I like that a lot. 
Yeah, that's a that's a good little tip and one that I've considered too because you know, uh, and I agree. I, I often wonder, you know, why do people go to that length when the number one thing in your brain at that point, other than finding a good tree, I guess, I guess that'd be number one. So the number two thing is, don't let this thing make a ton of noise. <laughs> but yeah. you know, stuff still happens. Your your binos slip out of your your you know case or whatever and cause something to shift or, or whatever. But but uh. Yeah, that's a, that's a good little tip, just a little bit of hockey tape where it makes sense. And, and yep. I think what can happen, too, when you start doing a lot of those those uh, mods is um, you start yourself down the path of overthinking it. And, yeah. uh, you know, then you get into that that paralysis by analysis, which I think is kind of the uh, worst enemy to a run-and-gun style of hunting where you're just absolutely totally overthinking and then you don't do anything and and you end up just going back to being that guy sitting on the field edge uh hoping for hoping to win the lottery <laughs> so, yeah absolutely so uh i think that's i think that's good that you mentioned that okay uh, uh two last things here that i wanted to ask you about so one is something I saw on on Instagram recently that you posted, and uh, the other thing is something I heard heard you say before, and it was in reference to this deal where you started out. I think you said you started out. I could be could be uh, making up your uh, life history here. <laughs> Sorry if I do, but uh, I think you said you became a better hunter when you realized that just sitting on field edges wasn't going to cut it, and then you mentioned how you started hunting river bottoms. Is that does that yeah. sound familiar? Yeah, so it, it those thing those two things aren't the same, right? Right. So, yep. in in regards to the field edge, I'll, I'll just because a lot of the farms that I hunt have river river bottom ground. It's just that's where I hunt, right? So it's not gotcha. like I decided to just move to river bottom ground. No, it's just I hunt a lot of river bottom ground just because that's what I have access to. Right. Um, but when it comes to field edges, I realized that I'm sitting on these field edges and I'm just watching deer from hundreds of yards away, Mm. whether they come out and maybe I would try to move in and try to get, you know, get deer to come by me, but it was typically too late at that point. So I realized, do I want to kill deer or do I want to see deer? And Mm -hmm. the goal of every hunter is to try to kill something, right? And so I said to myself, Hey, I need to move in to some of these points where maybe a deer trail crosses or maybe a, um, uh, there's some edge or a terrain feature funnels them down or, you know, it's, uh, uh, or some where it's inside the timber, 50, 60 yards, whatever. And there's, there's some sign that's there. Mm-hmm. And I've just, I just realized that I, when I started doing that, when I started looking for those new places inside of the timber, I saw way less deer, but I had more deer within shooting range mm. of me. And just from that point, just start refining those positions. You just, you, you have so many more contacts with, with deer, so many more opportunities with does. Now a big, you're not guaranteed a big buck to walk by. Every single <laughs> right, time, right. Yeah. Right? But once you can, beat that that doe group right once you can figure that access route into that stand location get a get a tree stand up in there and do it without bumping that doe group that comes by and if that doe group comes by you and makes it to that field edge and makes it out into that field 
who knows what's behind them, right? Because right. a lot of the time, I don't know about you, but the big mature bucks do not start showing their face until this late October time frame in daylight. Mm, yeah. um, I think it was like uh, there's multiple years in a row where you know, uh, the last somewhere around August or early September was the last daylight picture I had of a mature, mature buck. And then the next time I had a picture of a mature buck was October 28th. Wow. Within you know, 10 minutes of the end of shooting light. Wow. Right. So, so these, these animals just like the, the big mature bucks, they're just not running around like these does are. They're, they're smarter. They're more keen to their environment and their ecosystem. And they're just, they, they, they live by a different set of rules. Yeah. So I had, I started getting more encounters with those types of deer as I'm moving in to the timber because they're scent checking that entire field before they step into it in that October time frame or whenever they're chasing does, right? And that's when I started having better encounters and and uh, killing more deer. Mm. Man, that's that's a uh, that's exactly what a new hunter needs to hear. And and I like how you uh, made that little uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but but that give and take there, I guess maybe where, yeah, you might see less deer, but the deer you see are going to be at killable range. Cause that is a huge part of the battle for anyone. You know, you could be a five-year hunter and you still can't yeah. get that, that part figured out. And so, yep. uh, that's a, that's a great piece of information there. So if you're tuning in, hit rewind on, on, on that part and go back and listen to that, because that is something that could vault you several years ahead of the game. If you can, if you can, apply what what dan just talked about there of course taking all the other factors into play too you know you still got to mind your yep. wind and and uh you know be careful with your scent and noise and getting in at the right time but but yeah finding those 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 areas just just gonna increase your chances of success so right but and i'll say i, I do want i want to say one thing on that like i have a, i have a lot of access to ground whether mm. it's public or a private that I've gained gained access to. There's some people that the only place that they can possibly hunt is field edges, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have the ability to go into a, a timber or they may not have timber at all or they have to set up in a ground blind or whatever, right? So yeah. the whole point of this conversation is to take a look at your environment that you hunt in. Take a look at the, uh, the at, at how deer move in in your on your terrain on your farms that you hunt, and and use your brain to make moves on on them in that. Not what I say, but what like obviously you want to hunt downwind of of deer movement, mm -hmm. right? You don't want you don't want to get busted, right? There's several different ways to do that, yep. but the the way that you learn is through failure. Right. So if you're a brand new hunter and you're trying to figure things out, I'm going to say, go in there, just set up. Yeah. And then start making moves from there. Be observant. You have to take information away from every hunt. You can't just sit there and go, oh, a deer came out there. I'm going to go move over there. Why did he come out there? Right. right. And uh, I have a background in 
a small background in lean manufacturing and part of lean manufacturing there um, if there is a flaw in the system you have to do this thing called a five why and a five why is when you ask a question five different times to try to find the root cause of Mm. a problem right so you say to yourself um uh, why did i get busted well, because I, I, you know, I, I was set up at the top of the ridge. Why did you set up at the top of the, you know, like why, then why, mm. then why? And the goal there is to try to find where you went wrong, learn from that mistake. Then the next time you go out and hopefully fix that problem and then you don't get busted next time. Mm. And that's kind of a process that's really worked for me, um, along with just getting busted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds <laughs> times throughout my my hunting career and saying oh man that was a dumb move or hey i didn't know that the wind was doing this or hey man once the vegetation's out of this drainage all oh, the the wind's doing something completely different and i have to hunt it different you know morning versus evening like just use your brain observe your surroundings and make educated decisions from that point yeah that's a great point to make there using using what you got which is your brain and yep. the, the land that you're given to hunt and and you got to find a way to make it work and there's plenty of guys out there who are able to crack that code and enjoy success year after year after year and and a lot of it just comes through the school of hard knocks like dan just described and, and <laughs> asking the right asking the right questions and uh really probing to what the the root cause is for what you're experiencing yeah i like that Okay. So, so here's, here's the other unique hunting situation. I saw you made a post that I think you said once or twice a year, you like to try a little, uh, is, is it ground stocking in cornfields? Oh, corn, dude, it's fun. That I am interested in. Cause I've had yeah. that, I've had that thought before that a guy could, <laughs> but can you kind of just give us a, a quick rundown on how you do that? Yeah. So, you know, you, you always hear guys talk about there, especially in Iowa, right? We have all these, all this, all these crops and crops equal cover, mm-hmm. right? So a deer doesn't necessarily need to be in the woods. He could be bedded right in the middle of a cornfield and you wouldn't know it or along a buffer strip, you know, right on that edge where the corn meets the, the CRP or something like that. Yep. And, you know, guys are just like, Hey man, where, where's the, where are the deer at? And then all of a sudden they combine the field and all of the all the deer show back up <laughs> yep. because the the cover's gone. Right. So I've done this for several years, and it, a lot of it depends on when they combine. Right. This year it's pretty dry in Iowa, so they're probably going to, depending on what we get for rain in the next couple months, uh, they're probably going to get the corn out early, yep. uh, or if they turn it into silage or whatever. But if we have a wet harvest, and that's I have a couple farms where they pick this particular field dead last of all their all their crops and sometimes it can last into the late season Mm. you have the ability to really sneak up on some deer and it's fun during the rut right because deer are on their feet you can rattle from the ground they come in to investigate and it's just really fun Um, oh man yeah 
it's that, really fun. That's an adrenaline rush waiting to happen right there. Have a yep. have a buck charging in on you on the ground like yep. that. That'd be that'd be that'd be really cool. A lot of fun. Yeah, that's 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 I think an important thing to put in this conversation as well. Kind of as we come to a close here, always find a way to keep having fun with it. There's so many. There's so much more to to killing deer. I mean, our ancestors were doing it with spears and rocks. <laughs> yes. You know, there's there's so many more ways to to enjoy this activity than uh just the what you see on youtube what you hear on podcasts what you see on uh, the outdoor channel or reading an article there's there's and, and the guys who are doing it at the highest level that's the kind of thing they're doing they're finding a new unique way to to get it done and uh i like that that's that's cool i'm gonna give that a try for sure all right dan how can people uh track you down yeah man so you go to itunes you go to wherever podcasts are downloaded and you can just type in nine finger chronicles my podcast will pop up i also am the host of the hunting gear podcast so if you want to educate yourself on just a variety of different uh hunting gear and equipment uses functionalities that kind of stuff hunting the hunting gear podcast is a big one and then the sportsman's nation s-p-o-r-t-s-m-e-n apostrophe s nation uh and you can go to sportsmansnation.com. Uh, that's the website. Dude, we have like 20 different podcasts under the mm. network now. And yep. just so much great information from people who are living the life, like living what they preach. Yep. And it's all it's all relatable to the average guy. So, um, you know, not necessarily a guy who hunts for a living, but for a guy who is sits behind a machine or he's on the on the factory line for mm-hmm. 50 hours a week real relatable content so yep definitely and uh I, I will vouch for that that is uh uh dan whether he knows it or not played an important role in me learning how to just get out there and have a chance at at tagging a deer and uh he's he's got a lot of content that as he just said relates to the everyday guy and stuff that can be applied instantly much like a lot of the tips that we heard in the show. So make sure you follow him. Be sure to also follow him on social media. There's a lot of great stuff that you put out there. Some of it's pretty funny too. Just downright funny. <laughs> like the, uh, the picture. Keep it light. Yeah, that's right. The picture you had of your uh, kid's uh, bedroom being totally destroyed the other day. That, that was pretty, uh, that was relatable. <laughs> I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I, I get that for sure. But uh, no, make sure you uh, give Dan a follow on social media and, and uh, be sure to subscribe to his his uh, channel and and his podcast. You'll you'll get a ton of great information. Hear a lot of cool stories from hunters all across the country. And uh, you know what? Hopefully, just make yourself feel a little bit more a part of the hunting community, the good side of the hunting community. Yep. I want to say. And so, uh, make sure you uh, do yourself a favor and check them out in those ways. And uh, please don't forget about our our normal co-host, Mr. Brandon Martin, out there in Delaware. He's a uh, He's probably, uh, you know, just uh, whistling away right now because out there deer season opens up on the 1st of September, I believe. So he's uh, he's getting real excited here, I bet. But uh, make sure you head over to thehuntfishlife.com, check him out, and uh, see what he and his brothers and cousin are up to. And then don't forget about good old firstgenhunter.com. Head over there, find the links to the YouTube channel and podcast and uh articles and everything else that i have up there so uh, make sure you do that and uh but more importantly till next time take care and take someone hunting <laughs>